How would you like to be part of a conversation that changed someone's life or even changed your own life? Welcome to the Be Fun, Be Kind podcast, where we have amazing discussions hosted by someone new each week. Join us at BeFunBeKind.com to be part of our live events. Now, here's your host for this week's episode. Hi, my name is Jay Schiffman. Uh, I am a mental health and substance misuse and recovery speaker, coach, and advocate, and the host of the Choose Your Struggle podcast. If this story or what I'm doing resonates with you, you can find me on my website, jayshiffman.com, J-A-Y-S-H-I-F-M-A-N.com, or search for Choose Your Struggle on pretty much every social media, uh, or Jay Shiffman, I'm one of the two on, on all of them. So, <laughs> what I do, why I get up every day to talk about these issues, the issues of mental health and substance misuse and recovery and, and drug use and policy, all of this comes from personal experience. Now, I've, <laughs> I could pay to tell the very long version of my story. I'm not going to do that here today. What I am going to do very quickly to help you understand where I'm coming from here is give you the short version. And that starts with my childhood. Now, uh, I come from, from means, I come from a very privileged background. And uh, that means that I never really wanted for a lot in life. I'm, I'm very lucky to have two loving parents, to, to be the oldest of four boys. I always had, you know, people to play with. And, and, it, and I was never that kid who was worried about going hungry or, or making sure that there was a roof over my head. So keep all of that in mind as you hear this story. Now, when I was born in the mid eighties, there were roughly 350,000 people, specifically young people treated around the United States for the umbrella that, uh, of, of attention disorders that we refer to as ADHD. Now, by the time my, I was diagnosed myself, and that would be 1997 when I turned 11, that number had exploded to 2 million young people throughout this country. Now, why do I give you that data? It's because I want you to understand that while my story isn't special, uh, I was, like I said, one of 2 million young people that were treated for this. And I guarantee you, I'm not the only one that went through what I went through. I do want you to understand that I'm far from alone in what I went through. This is a story that doesn't get talked about a lot, despite there being ample evidence that it happens frequently. Now, <clears throat> I, I gave that data piece once when I was speaking. Right? I say that a lot. And a woman came up to me after I was done and said, well, thank God we're not doing that anymore. And I said, I'm so sorry to be the one to tell you this, but that number is now four and a half million young people throughout this country. Now, I'm not one of those people that thinks that every single person diagnosed and, and given medication for these issues uh, doesn't need it. That's not my point. I do believe that for a lot of people, uh, these sorts of, of medications are incredibly important. I also believe they're overused and that unfortunately we have a medical system that doesn't support those on the front lines. It makes it much more, much easier to simply give 
children or, or really anyone medication and send them on their way because they don't have the time to work with us that they should. And that's not their fault. I make that clear because I don't want people to think I'm anti-medication. Medication is very important, but it cannot happen alone. Unfortunately, uh, that frequently does happen. I, I was on a ride along with an EMS frontline worker, Kira, not long before COVID, last February or so. And we visited three calls of people who were threatening suicide. And all three had one thing in common. They were taking high levels of antipsychotics or benzodiazepines without working with a therapist. They were seeing a psychiatrist who gave them medication. There was not the behavioral work going on. Unfortunately, we know what that leads to, leads often to suicide. So keep all that in mind as I tell you this story. We all remember what going through puberty is like. It's tough for everyone. There's a lot going on inside of our bodies. It's a tough time in life, period. And if you're someone like me who struggled with low levels of, of mental health issues throughout their lives, I've, I've had anxiety and depression most of my life. I struggle with OCD. And you take that to the changes in the body and then you add in being put on levels of, of chemicals that the brain doesn't really know what to do with. It creates a perfect storm. And unfortunately for me, instead of seeing this perfect storm for what it was, my therapist who, who helped create this perfect storm, he, excuse me, there we go. He instead gave this perfect storm a name. He called it bipolar disorder. And he decided to try to treat that too. By my late teens, I was on four, five, then six different medications. And I was being taught all along the way that whenever I had to deal with an emotion, deal with a feeling, deal with a thought I didn't like, the answer was to take another pill. Now, by my early 20s, uh, after struggling through a depression episode in my freshman year of college, for failing out of school my sophomore year, I was completely physically and mentally dependent on all of these chemicals. I didn't know what was happening inside of me and I didn't like where I'd gone in life, but I didn't know what else to do. You know, for, at this point for over half a decade, I've been told that I had a severe issue of mental health. And when you're told that and things don't get better, it's easy to lose hope. Now there should have been instances where I thought, you know, maybe something isn't right here. Perfect example, my, my sophomore year, I went to the Middle East with some fraternity brothers uh, on winter break. And as I'm walking through TSA in, in, in J at JFK Airport in New York, I get pulled out of line and searched because they couldn't believe that this guy carrying a backpack full of nothing but pill canisters wasn't a drug dealer. And I had to tell them, no, 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 you know, look, my name is on all of them. My therapist's name is on all of them. But they had concerns, and that should have been a red flag for me to go back to my therapist and say, hey, this, this happened, and these people just couldn't believe that I was supposed to be taking all these medications. But it wasn't. It was a funny story to laugh about at the time, and frankly, it's a funny story to laugh about now. 
by my junior year of college, I had failed out, as I said, and I was sort of adrift. I, I was jumping from job to job. And soon after, I couldn't hold down a job. See, I, I had become so mentally and physically dependent on these medications that getting off the couch, trying to do something with my day, these had become struggles. These had become goals. And that was when I finally gave up. I, I, I spent the summer of 2009 touring around the country following a, a band that I had fallen in love with around most of the Midwest and the East Coast, living out of a tent in my car, but more importantly, being around people who understood me. And then when I came back to a life that I didn't really fit in anymore, I gave up. I said, I've been told I have this illness. I've been taking medication for over half a decade and I'm only getting worse. So that summer of 2009, I attempted suicide twice. Uh, the second time I overdosed. And when I came to, <laughs> clearly I survived. I was in a lockdown unit. Uh, the kind you see on TV, no shoelaces, no belts, showering with the door cracked open, that kind of thing. After three weeks there, I was sent to a long-term care facility, what we would have called a mental institution about 50 years ago in the, uh, beautiful woods of Stockbridge, Massachusetts. Now, this is a town where Norman Rockwell is from. So if you've ever seen his sort of uh, bucolic Americana paintings, that's my surroundings, except I was there against my will at a place that continued to want to treat me as someone struggling with, with substance, I'm sorry, with, with a mental health struggle. But there is where I started to realize that maybe something was off. You see, I got to know people who were really were struggling with bipolar disorder. And my struggle didn't really look like theirs. It, it had things in common, of course, but medication was helping them. And, and even if it wasn't, there was very clear signs of, of their struggle that there weren't for me. Now, there were other people there that I really did identify with. They were struggling with substance misuse. I said, those people, that's my people. That's what I'm going through. So I walked into my therapist's office and I, at this, at this uh, facility, and I said, I really want to get off my medication. And he said, no, he said, the only reason, the only way I'd let you get off your medication is if you agreed to, to start over on new medication. And I said, no. So I did the only thing I could. I checked myself out and I went to live with the only person who would take me in my grandmother in, in Arizona, a little, little town called Cornville outside of, of uh, the, the beauty of the Red Rocks of Sedona, Arizona. And, and while there, I went through what's called step-down detox. And step-down detox, for those who aren't up on all their medic medical terms, is when you can't stop taking one prescription pill, or sorry, all your, your pills, because you're on so many that you know, a, a combined withdrawal would literally kill you. So you go with through what's called a step down, which is what I did. See, I couldn't do cold turkey, right? That, that would that would kill me. So I had to take a little bit less every couple of days until over months, you're off all the medications. And that was a very agonizing period because cold turkey, it wasn't as strong as that. It was sort of a low level cold turkey, but instead of doing it for a couple of days, maybe a week, I did it for almost four months. And so I was sort of in constant agony. But that spring, after, after that experience, for the first time in a decade, 
I, I was free. I had nothing left in my system. So I spent the next couple of years really rebuilding my life. I moved back to where I'm from in Cincinnati, Ohio, and uh, went back to school, got my degree in psychology in 2012, and uh, set out on this journey of sort of creating the life that I did want. But everything changed on uh, election night of 2015. You see, I was at the time working in nonprofit fundraising and doing politics on the side, but a buddy of mine had asked me to get up on stage and tell a story, tell my story. And I said no multiple times because I was terrified. You know, the stigma around these subjects is very real. But finally, I said yes. And I got up that night and I told a very similar story to what you just heard, a little bit longer. And uh, that changed my life. And now here I am six years later. I do this for a living. Uh, I speak. I write. I coach. I consult. I host the Choose Your Struggle podcast where we talk about all of these issues. But the most important thing to me is I fight to end the stigma around these subjects because the fact is until we can't openly talk about them, until people feel comfortable just talking about these issues, we can't accomplish the incredible, tremendous system changes that are needed to accomplish what we would like to see accomplished if we want to find a world where everybody gets the treatment they deserve. But to get there, we just have to talk about it. Now, how do I do that? How do I do that? I do that by helping people think just a little bit differently about issues of substance misuse. That's my challenge. See, I've got to see this from sort of both sides, right? I was, I'm a, I'm a 90s kid, so I was raised with dare and just say no. And then I went down this hole myself, as you just heard, except that it's not the one that they taught us in school. I didn't, I didn't start struggling with substance misuse after a buddy passed me a joint underneath the bleachers like Nancy Reagan would have me believe. Nor was my dissent the one we see on all the, the, the front page of the papers right now with the substance misuse brought on by, you know, uh, the high school quarterback who gets his knee blown up, is put on opioids, and then switches to heroin. That's the new sort of in conversation about substance misuse. But both of those polls, they only cover a small amount of this community. The fact is we're made up by a lot of different stories, just like mine. Now, the reason it's so important to hear these different stories, to hear about all the different ways people come to struggling with substance misuse and, and their experiences while they struggle, is because we've been told for a long time that there are a lot of harmful beliefs around substance misuse. We've been taught these. As I mentioned, D.A.R.E. was taught to me in school, just say no which, uh, as studies have shown, created more substance misuse than it solved. We were taught these things in school. We were taught these in our newspapers, our TV shows, our, our movies, our books. Science wasn't part of the equation, right? If, if someone went to treatment, it meant they went to, to AA and 12-step, which is wonderful for the people that works for it, but it's a very small percent of the population, depending on what you believe or, or, or what study you're reading uh, could be as high as 30% of those who struggle with, with alcohol issues and actually go to AA for service or as low as the single digits. There's a lot of different ways to measure this, but the fact is it's very far from 100. And that's okay. 
it shouldn't be the only tool that we use to to get healthy but unfortunately that is how our society has seen this right because number one it's religion based and our society loves a good (laughs) religion uh two it's free and three um it allows for this anonymity that that people still believe is important around this subject because of the of the stigma but i'm here to tell you that that doesn't have to be the case as you heard in my story, I never went to AA or I went a couple of times. It didn't really work for me. And there are a lot of amazing people out there trying to find ways to, to help people besides just AA. You know, we do have medically assisted treatment now, which is wonderful. But unfortunately, there's so much red tape and so much outdated ideas around it that the people who really need it aren't really getting it. And that's a story for another day. But what does this all go back to? Right. What is What does all of this go back to? The answer is outdated and harmful myths and stereotypes around substance misuse that don't really fit when you consider them. You know, you heard in my story, this idea that you have to make a choice to struggle with substance misuse. Where was my choice? I was a kid who was told he needed these medications. Now, could I have gotten a second opinion? Hell yeah, I could have gotten a second opinion. That's another thing we don't do in the, the mental health world. You know, if someone tells you of cancer, you say, good Lord, that is horrible. Thank you for telling me. I'm going to go get a second opinion. Someone told me that I had bipolar disorder and I went, God, what do we do? There was no second opinion. It was believe in his word. That was my choice. Beyond that, I didn't make a choice. There's no choice involved in that. So if we're throwing choice out, What do we know about people struggle with substance misuse? Well, number one, we know that genetics plays a huge, huge factor. We know that if one parent struggles with substance misuse, their child is five times more likely to struggle. We know if both parents struggle, it's nine times more likely. Okay, so, you know, that kid, he may make a choice to use a substance. Clearly, he's not going to make a choice to struggle. That choice was already made for him. Okay, what else do we know? We know that your environment plays a large part in if you are in an environment we don't feel safe, if you're in an environment where you need to check out because life is not doing for you what it needs to be doing for you to feel comfortable and you to feel uh, beyond safe, just stable. We know that you're very likely to struggle with something. Okay. So there's no choice there. Okay. You were not, you did not choose to be brought into an environment that doesn't allow you to flourish. Okay, so so environment's the second piece after genetics. Number three, we know what's happening in your brain is a huge part of it. If you've undergone trauma that has literally affected your brain, if you are living in a situation that that has you uh, sort of on, on your fight or flight mode constantly activated, we know that that's going to impact you. We know that if you are already struggling with mental health, it's going to make it much more likely you're going to struggle with substance misuse. That's another variable, what's happening in your brain. And the fourth piece that is uh, just as important is how you feel in life. So it's not just your surroundings, right? We're all going through traumatic experience right now with COVID being locked down. But if you feel more connected, if you feel more accepted, if you have a safety net, you're much less likely to struggle. So that's another variable people aren't choosing all of these things 
impact how likely you are to struggle with substance misuse. You notice that no, no, nowhere in there did I say religion. Religion does play a role. That, that's part of that connectedness, probably part of that um, your, your environment impacting you. But unfortunately, praying cannot ward off substance misuse. If it did, there wouldn't be a treatment industry because priests could do it all. And it's something that I have to work with a lot because there's a very outdated idea that many people still hold on to that falling away from God is how you struggle with substance misuse. Well, you know what? I can't say you're wrong. I've never been one (laughs) to be very religious. I can tell you that there are some very spiritual people that I met in my recovery. So I don't think that that has a lot to do with it. Now, what other harmful histories or ideas come into this? Well, let's go back and look at the way that this country has treated those with with substance misuse and, and more importantly, those who struggle with drug use. Now, the first drug laws in this country were overtly racist to a way that you may not believe you don't go read them yourselves. The very first drug law of modern United States history was passed in the in the early 1900s directly aimed at Asian uh, immigrants who smoke opium. Now, I make that very clear. It's the Asian immigrants. This wasn't for other immigrants. This was aimed at Asian immigrants. And the type of opium that was smoked, because the type of opium that wasn't smoked was still found in medicine at the time. So this law was passed prohibitively prohibitively outlawing that type of opium. Okay, so that one was was over. They directed it right at a minority group and said, we don't want you doing this. Everyone else is fine. And it just went from there. There first drug czar in this nation's history is a guy named Harry Anslinger. And he, he led what became the DEA during prohibition. And when prohibition ended his organization, his, his, uh, his you know, warriors, as he saw them needed something, needed something to focus on because alcohol was now legal. So what did he do? He targeted the substances that were in most people's medicine cabinets, right? Cannabis at the time was still in medicine heroin was still in medicine but he didn't he didn't go after the white americans who were using this no (laughs) he told the white americans that it was a very different uh, impact on their lives that they needed to be worried about and those were specifically from out groups now he went after cannabis he made up the they made up the word marijuana this was not a word that you heard before to associate it with mexican immigrants but that wasn't enough for, for Henry Anzinger because at the time, many Americans did not fear, fear Mexican immigrants. Who did they fear? They feared black people. They feared black and brown citizens of this country. So Harry Anzinger is very famous for a couple of quotes that are, I think are important to understand when it comes to understanding this nation's history on, on drug use. Number one, Harry Anzinger, when asked why cannabis should be illegal, he said marijuana makes darkies think they're as good as white men. Pretty, pretty blatant. Okay. Number one. Number two, he told a story about how <laughs> jazz musicians, and he, he, he highlighted jazz musicians. This was in the 30s and 40s, and, and jazz was the biggest thing at the time. Jazz musicians were smoking marijuana with white women, and these white women would then sleep with these jazz musicians. This is all in his quote. And his direct quote is that they that the white women would sleep with the jazz musicians and anyone else. So as you can see, it's racism, it's it's sexism, 
without open bigotry. And in many ways, these things were completely fabricated. There's no evidence to any of this. You know, he also talked about, uh, he, he loved telling the story of the black men who smoked marijuana and became a raving, fill in the, the blank there, who couldn't be brought down by guns and all this harmful language. So again, these things were openly racist. And not only that, they were all made up. Now, what makes this even more dangerous is that people bought into this. People believed him because the U.S. government got behind this. And a lot of this same language goes into the official kickoff of the war on drugs by Richard Nixon in the, in the 70s. And then Ronald Reagan and Nancy Reagan take it up another notch in the, in the 80s. Clinton takes it up another notch with help from our current president, Joe Biden, in the 90s. And it just goes from there. Now, we know this was all based on lies. And we know that, that this was directed at criminalizing uh, minority groups because John Ehrlichman, who was Nixon's advisor and who famously got arrested during the Watergate scandal, said that near, right before his death. He kind of had a come to Jesus moment. And he talked about how they knew, he and Nixon knew, they couldn't make it illegal to be black or against the war. But what they could do is make it illegal to use marijuana and heroin and associate those uses with those communities and then criminalize those communities heavily. And it, it worked. It was never about the drugs. The fact is, less than 10% of those who use drugs struggle with substance misuse. So we're coming back around here. Why is this important? If we only think of substance or of, of drug use in the form of substance misuse, we're leaving out 90% of those who use drugs. Now, you may be listening to this and going, I've, I've smoked weed from a time or two. Yeah, that's you. That's your, your friends, your family members, all who have used drugs safely. But we can't talk about that until we open up about our own stories, until we acknowledge the racist, the sexist, the, the history of this that are all based on lies. And when we do that, we can start having these honest conversations. We're seeing this around the world. Portugal famously decriminalized all drugs here in the U.S. We are seeing that with the legalization of cannabis. Uh, there are now more states that it's legal than it's illegal. Most of the states fall in between with medical or limited use. We saw that in Oregon when they passed a, a referendum to, to, legal, to dis, uh, decriminalize all drugs and to uh, legalize psilocybin for, for therapy and for research. We saw the same thing in D.C., this is, this is happening. We have to embrace this because what we're seeing from around the rest of the world is when you treat drug users as people instead of animals that we do in this country and unfortunately a lot of other places, number one, substance misuse plummets and those who do struggle, they get the help they need. They get the help they deserve. So I hope you've learned something today. I hope you've learned about the, the horrible origins of this story of drug use in this country, uh, of substance misuse. Now, here's what I would encourage. Number one, go read the book Chasing the Screen by Johan Hari. He's an incredible author, writer. Uh, the book was a New York Times bestseller. It lays this all out. I hear, I hear a lot. People go, oh, my God, this is horrible. What, is, is this known? Yeah, it's known. It's, it's, it's been open. The U.S. government has spent a lot of time trying to explain away Harry Anslinger's bigotry. But the fact is, Harry was very open about it, as many people were at the time. And a lot of his ideas and these laws still exist today. 
people are starting to challenge them. This is all public knowledge if you're willing to look. Go read that book and, and search other places too. There's some incredible writers out there. Uh, support the organization, Drug Policy Alliance. That's an incredible one. Go find uh, Filter Magazine. It's an online magazine that has honest reporting on drug use and substance misuse. Some of this stuff will blow your mind. That's the most important thing, okay? Go educate yourself. Number two, if you have a lived experience with this, with mental health, with substance misuse, tell your story. Uh, it's the most important thing you personally can do because you cannot hate up close. You just cannot do it. If you tell your story, if we all tell our stories, we will end the stigma and we will challenge people to think differently about these things and expose the lies that permeate all of this. Tell your story, tell your truths and the stigma. Finally, number three, reach out to me. I do a lot around this, right? I have the Choose Your Struggle podcast. The Choose Your Struggle podcast can be heard on all podcast platforms. It's in the second season. I talk to industry leaders. I talk to uh, people with lived experience, people whose names you'll know. You're like, wow, I didn't know that, blah, blah, blah. It's on there. Go check out the Choose Your Struggle podcast. I have a storytelling event called Rock Bottom Storytellers, where I give people who struggled with something, mental health, substance misuse, tragedy, uh, an opportunity to talk about their struggle because we have to normalize not only struggling as part of life, but talking about it. And number three, coming up soon is a, uh, a, a series of lives just telling stories because that's how we connect is through stories. Find me, jayshiffman.com, J-A-Y-S-H-I-F-M-A-N.com. Anywhere on social media, choose your struggle or Jay Schiffman. I'll be there. I know I didn't talk at all about what choose your struggle means. It's in plenty of other places. I personally think talking about these topics is incredibly important. As you can see, I'm very passionate about it because I think that all of these things that we're seeing happen around us are very important. But until we can honestly butt up against this war on drugs and end it, this country cannot be free. My name is Jay Schiffman. I encourage you to reach out. I want to hear your story. Choose your struggle. Thanks for tuning in this week. We would love for you to be part of our next discussion. Join our live events happening every week at BeFunBeKind.com. See you soon.